Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm speaking with Lisa Guide, co-founder of the Women Effect Action Fund, a group dedicated to achieving economic equality for women in our country. Lisa and her colleagues have spent the last four years focused on turning out the caregiver vote. And thanks to them, women came out in force to vote in this past election, motivated by care economy issues. These are working moms who've silently struggled to fulfill their historical caregiver roles while also holding down jobs, often as the primary wage earners in their households. Lisa and I talk about why everyone loses when women must choose between staying home with a sick child or losing a day's pay, why policies like paid family leave and childcare are just as important to our economy and infrastructure as bridges and roads, and how COVID has made the whole situation exponentially worse. The emergent caregiver vote is urban, suburban, and rural, Democrat, Republican, independent, and is a force to be reckoned with. In other words, I am woman, hear me roar. Now here is my conversation with Lisa Guide. Lisa Guide, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So Lisa, you are the co-founder of the Women Effect Action Fund. What exactly does that do and what led you to start the organization? Well, the Women Effect Action Fund is an organization of what I like to call donors and doers, and we're working to achieve really true economic equality for women in our lifetimes. I've spent most of my career in politics and government, and I've worked for governors and a president and a cabinet secretary. And when I had kids myself as a working mom, it was really brought into full view and relief as to how difficult it is first of all, to be raising children and working full time and how it's a particular problem in the United States because of the lack of laws that we have that most of the other world does have and enjoys that would enable mothers and working parents to have live up to their full work responsibilities and family responsibilities. I think now with the pandemic that we're all experiencing, I think everybody who's listening to this who kind of ask themselves if they know a person who's currently having a crisis around caregiving. And I would suspect that just about everybody does. If you're not experiencing it yourself, you probably know somebody close to you who is. And certainly the pandemic has really laid bare the problems that we have in the country in terms of work and care. But those problems have been around for a really long time. And our organization is dedicated to trying to solve those, help solve them, and bring awareness to opinion leaders and to the public about the solutions that are out there. So let's talk about the caregiver vote and the caregiver economy. So these are issues that you've been very focused on at Women Effect Action Fund for the last four years, I guess. Who would you define as a caregiver? 
caregivers, well, a caregiver is could be anyone. I mean, typically tend to be women, either professional caregivers or mothers, grandmothers, anyone who has to provide a significant amount of time taking care of somebody else. We know that there are millions and millions of caregivers in this country who also work full-time in another job. And the level of flexibility that our system provides is really minimal. And particularly when you get into the service positions, frontline workers, and people that we depend on every single day, particularly in this pandemic, there isn't much flexibility at all. And as a result, families are suffering. And then also it's making it much more difficult for our country to kind of get back up and running because we don't have the ability for people to take off from work if they are sick or have to say care for a child that needs to be quarantined because they went to school and the class shut down because of the COVID exposure. You have to choose between staying home, taking care of your child or not getting paid and not being able to buy groceries. So it's really bad choices that we have, uh, limited choices. And that's what we're trying to fix. And what's the care economy? It's interesting. I've had a lot of people ask me, so what is the care economy? It's not a phrase that we've heard a lot, but we're going to hear about it more and more, particularly because our new president, Biden, has included care economy policies in his economic recovery plan for the country post-pandemic. So care economy is the type of policies that are a huge, huge part of the economy that are have typically been unseen. I kind of think back to when I was working in the federal government, when I was, I like to tell people that I had an opportunity to work in the White House and to have babies. And unfortunately, they both happened at the same time. And I couldn't put either one of them off because I had my first daughter on my 35th birthday. And I ended up having another daughter after that. But I remember the enormous workload and a completely undeveloped ability of workplaces to engage mothers. And I, I had a great boss. I had a boss who was very understanding and wanted to be able to help the younger mothers who were also trying to, to have a career. So if you fast forward of 20 years and my daughters now are young adults and it occurs to me that very little has changed for them since, since I was a, a young working mother and that working parents in general are still experiencing the same issues. And the point about care economy is that if parents are able to work to the best of their ability, if caregivers, people who professionally care for children or older adults are given a good wage and the benefits that many other people enjoy, and it's a really good job, then all of the extra kind of activity that this investment in our people would promote would actually stimulate the economy. I mean, the caregiving infrastructure proposal that's in President Biden's Build Back Better plan contains a really significant investment in caregiving jobs, investing in 
being able to build a number of people who are doing that work. And it's really, in some ways, it's a jobs program for black and brown women. It will create so many more jobs, which will create happy, you know, more stable families in terms of their economic health and welfare. And it will stimulate the economy. So a care economy is a new term, but definitely something you're going to hear about more and more. So you just talked about Biden's plan being a jobs program for black and brown women. But is there a larger demographic for the care economy voter? Yes. The answer is yes. So this last election cycle, uh, the 2020 presidential election, the Women Effect Action Fund ran an independent electoral program, meaning independent, meaning not affiliated or coordinated with any candidate or political party, in which we engaged with voters in 10 states and talk to them about care economy issues. Because as I said before, whether somebody has paid leave or has the ability to take a paid sick day, these have typically been considered kind of personal problems that people don't necessarily talk about or think that there should be a public solution to them. And by going to doors and going to pre-COVID, going to schoolyards and places of business and talking to people, largely women, about their care responsibilities, we found that there's a huge cross-section of people who are having difficulties every day, not just during pandemic times, but particularly during the pandemic. And after we talked to millions of voters and afterwards we did a poll in the 10 states, which tend were battleground states in the election. And we found that three out of every four of voters in these states supported Biden's plan to invest in care policies. And quite literally, these voters who decided the elections are overwhelmingly supportive of investments in care. And we found that they also were thinking about care issues when they cast their vote. So Congress really needs to pay attention to this as it debates what to do next on COVID relief. It's on the top of the minds of many voters, important battleground states So if you need a political reason to support investments in care issues, you would find that there are a lot of them because there's so many voters out there who care about the issues. Yeah. So the focus of your group is clearly on women. It's in the title. You said women are mostly caregivers. I mean, men are caregivers too. And I, of course, that your policies would benefit everyone who falls into that category. But in the focus on women, is that because historically, they were considered the primary caregivers. And now they are also often the primary or only wage earner in a family. And it makes me think of that old perfume commercial, like from the 70s, you know, Anjoli, and you bring the woman brings home the bacon, fries it up in the pan. And it was very empowering. That was the message of the women's movement in the 70s. But now we're seeing the kind of breaking point of that, where women are sort of being kept in their historical roles as caregivers, yet also are working and burning the candles at both ends and not able to make ends meet. And 
I mean, do you feel like that that is where these policies grow out of and these issues grow out of what was undone in the women's movement? Yes, that's a really good question. It's a topic of much discussion and debate. And I do think that there was unfinished business in that we women and mothers were told they could do it all and have it all. And women just generally rose to that challenge. However, the kind of the other side, the flip side of that coin is that if you were a working mom and you couldn't strive to kind of live up to that new ideal that was presented at the time, I suspect that that was maybe the genesis of this notion that the struggles that you have as a working mother should be private and personal and not something that is public and should be in the public eye. And that is rapidly, rapidly changing now. And it is the unfinished business that we must deal with. I mean, the rest of the world kind of gets this a bit better than we do in the United States. And there's lots of reasons for that, probably too long to get into or too detailed to get into at this point in this discussion. But it doesn't actually have to be this way. And I think that that's the key to the success of the conversations that the Women Affect Action Fund had with voters this past cycle. It's almost as if when you have a public discussion with someone about the struggles you have as a parent and as a working parent, that it's a light bulb moment for almost everyone once they realize that you could actually expect that just like you expect the government to kind of fix, build roads where you want to go or fix roads when they have potholes in them, that you could kind of expect that the people, that workers in the United States are as critical a part of the infrastructure of our country as anyone else. And so therefore, as anything else, and so therefore, that the government investing in people and making it so that they can work and be productive and live up to their caregiving responsibilities is it's a national issue and it's a issue that's for the good of our country. And I think that's what is starting to happen now. Kind of the curtains being pulled back and people across the board, Democrat, independent, Republican, men and women are understanding that doesn't really have to be this way and that we can expect we should have a government that can help remove the roadblocks that we have to success for our family, our families and our our children, our loved ones, and that we don't each have to battle an international global pandemic on our own, (laughs) that maybe the government could help us remove those roadblocks so that we can get back to making progress, health, prosperity, and happiness. So let's talk about the last four years. So you started Women Effect Action Fund in 2015. I saw on your website. My guess is you're expecting to see this amazing opportunity for advancement in women's rights under Hillary Clinton. We all know 
that didn't happen. But the good news is you were already positioned to hit the ground running, although it was going to have to be from a more defensive posture. So did you have any illusions as to how things would play out under Trump? And were the past four years as bad as you expected them to be for women's rights? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nancy, I know that the focus of your podcast is the call to action that women felt after the 2016 election. And I would say you are absolutely correct. We definitely didn't expect that Donald Trump would be elected president. And we started the fund in mid-2015 in order to be able to have a vehicle with which we could use to engage women and try to start to make some changes in these policies that we've been talking about. And so when that didn't happen, we went through the shock that everyone else did. And I would say, you know, we, from my perspective, so much of the political power and engagement and important work to be done when you are a person who engages with voters is obviously in the States. And so I think what we did was we just went into States and started talking to people. And We started out in Virginia in 2017, and we did an experiment, which was a measured electoral experiment, where we went and we did what is called a deep canvas. So that would be when somebody knocks on your door and you have a conversation that lasts, is designed to last a while, you know, 10 to 12 minutes. And we began to talk to women about, you know, what do they wake up in the morning worrying about and what's their daily struggle? A lot of it was about, am I going to be able to get my kids to school and get to work on time or I have a deadline? And a lot of it always kind of went back to this touchstone of work and family. And so we went to the doors during the governor's race in Virginia in 2017 in a kind of experiment and had these conversations and then talked to voters about which of the candidates had better policies to help them with their daily challenges. And lo and behold, we found that when we analyzed it, there was a tremendous effect upon independent voters. So people who didn't necessarily vote Republican or Democrat reliably all the time, but a tremendous effect, a swing towards voting for the candidate that had the better policies, who in this case was Ralph Northam, who is now the current governor of Virginia. And when we found this, we're like, wow, we're really onto something here. This is profoundly impactful. So we spent the next few years not trying to get policies passed at the federal level because that wasn't going to happen. But we instead invested in talking to American voters and women in particular across the country. And I would say that when we first started this, I don't think there were very many programs out there who were focused on the care issues as a way to communicate with voters. Certainly, you have a lot of other politically salient issues and independent programs that we're talking about other things to voters, whether it be climate change or reproductive choice, lots of really important things. And those issues are really important to groups of voters as well. But we found that there were definitely a group of voters for whom the stuff that we were talking about 
rose to the top in terms of their daily concerns. So that's what we spent our time doing over the last four years, which culminated in this program that we ran in 2020, which I believe ended up being the second largest field independent program in the country this year, because it was 10 states, $27 million of voter contact work. Great. Well, that segues us very nicely into 2020 and what happened this year. It sounds like you got to spend four years laying the groundwork and seeing the response and the need for your kind of work to address issues for people who are really not having their issues addressed at all. So you were in a, seems like a really good position to make things happen this year. So how did you ensure that the Democratic Party was backing your proposals and that they were getting to the actual lawmakers and included in their platforms as candidates? Was that part of your work or was that being handled by somebody else? Yeah, there's a a tremendous group of organizations around the country that are increasingly focusing on care issues. And we're really proud to be part of that. So there is a collective effort and understanding and a growing understanding that number one, these are core economic issues. They're not kind of like sideline, you know, it'd be nice to have. I think that that's a key, key point. Having the ability to take a paid sick day or paid family or medical leave when you need to, it really is the difference between success and struggle for so many families. So to think of them as important core economic issues is increasingly becoming the norm as opposed to, you know, kind of a fringe way of thinking. So therefore, there's a bunch of organizations that are really leaders and engaging policymakers, members of Congress, mayors and governors and talking to them about the need for the issues. And I have to say that, you know, again, with the pandemic, you know, just think about it. I mean, we need, yes, we need vaccines. We need a reliable way of getting vaccines out to people. We need to get schools back working. But when you really think about it, if we don't have the ability to take paid sick day or paid leave in case of the need to quarantine, we're not going to be able to beat the pandemic in a timely way if we don't have most people being able to, to take that time. So, you know, last year, Congress actually passed the first federal paid leave and paid sick leave program. It was on an emergency basis as a part of the pandemic response, and it was limited. But that program, those programs that they passed last year were associated with 400 fewer COVID infections per state in states that had no prior paid sick leave policies. So, We're still months away from having any kind of herd immunity. And until that time, we need to make sure people can stay home when they're sick to limit the spread of the virus. So we need these policies now. And there is a very vigorous group of outside advocates that are supporting the President Biden's proposals to extend the emergency paid leave provisions that were passed by Congress last year. And indeed, what would be great is if we were able to understand that we need these policies on a permanent basis because it's not just the pandemic. 
I want to get to that in a minute. Let's just talk a little bit more about how the caregiver vote came into play and in November, particularly in battleground states. And I know you said that COVID obviously played a it kind of exposed the fault lines as well. They were already cracking, but it kind of laid them bare. So what happened? Yeah. Well, the caregiver vote, I mean, certainly what we, I mean, we're, and we're still kind of in the, in the throes of the analysis of this, but the caregiving and caregiver vote really was an important factor for those voters who switched their votes from 2016 to 2020. So by switching, I mean people who either voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and then voted for Joe Biden in 2020, or people who didn't vote at all in 2016, or voted for a third party candidate and then ended up voting for Joe Biden. So the analysis that we've looked at shows that a good portion of these folks who were vote switchers, they were thinking about care issues. It was one of the things that they cared about when they were casting their vote. And what we think is that from the polling that we did shows that there is really an emerging force of care economy voters that were critical to Biden's victory in the battleground. So we consider it's a kind of a new constituency that spills over partisan lines and politicians who don't see it growing right before their eyes are setting themselves up for a rude shock. We also, I mean, whether it be suburban or rural, we saw in a tremendous number of rural voters who said, I was thinking about these issues when I voted. And the polling that we did showed that the margins that Donald Trump racked up in rural areas of battleground states were cut in half by Joe Biden. So I think there is kind of a misperception or a growing understanding as we see more data that comes in that even though there's a thinking that rural areas were, you know, 100% Trump country, that just wasn't the case that we saw. We saw a massive movement away from voting for Donald Trump to Joe Biden in those areas. And we think that support for the care economy policies had something to do with that. That's really interesting. And what about, so in November, we saw, how did that impact your strategy when it came time for the Georgia runoffs? Because I know you guys were involved in those as well. Yeah. And I want to just be clear that there was an incredible work done in Georgia and that the work that we did was a relatively small program. Certainly other groups, the Georgia majority and other groups, you know, really did the lion's share of the tremendous work. And so many people worked so hard through the holidays. And our program was rather small, but we did engage a group of voters largely in the northern suburbs of Atlanta. And those voters kind of had heard that there was a subset of voters who had voted for Joe Biden in the presidential, but had not voted in the Senate races at all. And so we thought that perhaps these voters would respond well to contact and education on the care issues. 
So we ran a relatively small voter contact program where we went to the doors of about 50,000 voters in the northern Atlanta suburbs around CARE. And again, like you have to kind of wait for the analysis and all of the data to become available. But obviously in that effort, it was all hands on deck and we just wanted to help out the larger programs in the state that were engaging largely with the uh, voters of color. And it worked. It was a tremendous, tremendous effort. And I do believe that we're going to see families in this country are going to be better off because we now have a a Senate that will hopefully support some of the innovations that the new administration wants to adopt around care and investments in care. So hopefully families are going to see a difference because of that election. So you talked about the caregiver policies and Biden's COVID relief plan. What's And you mentioned a little bit about what you want to see beyond the relief package. What do we need to address the long-term change in these areas? Well, almost every country in the world, except for, I think, Swaziland and maybe one other country, and I'm not remembering, but almost every country has a more profound and real paid leave policy where any new parents can take off a certain amount of time or can take time off in order to care for a sick family member. So I think what we are hoping is that we can continue to show and work with champions in the Senate, work with Senator Schumer, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, Senator Patty Murray, Senator Elizabeth Warren and others. And then in the House, along with the Speaker, the new chair of the Appropriations Committee, Congresswoman DeLauro, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, who's now in the leadership of the House. And these are champions, who people who really get it, and to work with them to educate others about how important the policies are to a healthy economy and thriving economy in the United States. So we want to see the emergency paid leave benefits that were passed last year by Congress extended and invested in. And we also want to follow the leadership of Senator Gillibrand and Congresswoman DeLauro, who have a bill that's called the Family Act. And this bill would provide permanent paid family and medical leave in the United States. Currently, the only permanent law or standing law that we have in the U.S. is a unpaid family and medical leave, whereby the federal government does guarantee that you can take a certain amount of time off without pay and not lose your job now. But Almost every other country in the world has a paid program, and we think the U.S. should should do that as well. And so that's definitely going to be a focus. The other focus is going to be what we were talking about before, Nancy, the child care and care infrastructure investments. So the idea that, I mean, I 
have like my kids are now young adults, so I'm not having this issue personally, but other women I work with, when the pandemic hit, all the childcare centers shut down, preschool shut down, school shut down. Wow. I mean, I'm sure you had the same experience and it was just so, so difficult. There's some version of that going on even in the non-pandemic times. So we need to have a much more robust infrastructure to help take care of kids and older adults. And let's make that something that our country does and invest in it just like we invest in roads and bridges. So that's what our focus is going to be over the next couple of years. So as this election has shown, women are currently enjoying unprecedented political power and in many ways were the key to we think, the key to democratic wins this past cycle. And that's thanks in part to the work you've done to raise up caregiver issues and solutions. The fact is women who vote make things happen. Where do we go from here? Just like in terms of women's issues in general, women's rights, how do we leverage that power into continuing to make meaningful change for women? Mm, Yeah, well, we've got to do it. I'm sure that the new administration is well aware of the fact that women elected Joe Biden president, particularly women of color, and that there needs to be real, tangible results right away for people who are hurting right now. I mean, it's women, yeah, women were activated, women elected and worked for and elected Joe Biden And meanwhile, at least a decade of women's economic progress has been wiped out by the pandemic. There are 865,000 women have left the workforce in in our country. And it's actually more now. That was a number from September. And that's four times as many women as men have left the workforce. Unemployment among women has reached double digits for the first time since it's been tracked in 1948. And this is a crisis that's hurt women of color the most. And as you said, Nancy, before, women are primary breadwinners. Two out of five mothers are the primary breadwinners for their families. So we stood up and worked when we needed to. We voted when we needed to. And we need relief. So I certainly want to make sure that all of our policymakers are constantly thinking about that and are poised to deliver real results right away. Because as we know, when mother is happy, everybody's happy in the family. (laughs) (laughs) And we need to make mothers happy. (laughs) I'm told that a lot in my household. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, Lisa Guide, thank you so much for joining me at New Faces of Democracy. And thank you so much for the work you're doing at Women Effect Action Fund and raising all of us up. Nancy, thank you for the opportunity and thank you for all the work you're doing with this wonderful podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.